The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. If you're reading from the Black Bible in front of you, it starts on page 839. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. Well, it's good to be back and uh, thankful for uh, the opportunity to be able to just be back in the pulpit, be able to preach to you. Before we just get started, I just want to say thank you um, uh, for everything that we, you guys did uh, for me this past past month. Over the past month, um, I received cards, I received gifts, um, I received encouragement, um, and you just need to know that uh, pastoring can be hard. Um, pastoring can be a, a lonely um, road. I'm thankful for the elders. I'm thankful for the leadership team. Um, most importantly, I'm thankful for my wife who um, probably hears um, more uh, boo-hoos and sad stories uh, than she'd probably care to admit um, as I just uh, think things out loud and run things past her. But whenever you guys give those words of encouragement, you just need to know it, it means more uh, than you could ever possibly know. And so this past week, every little card, every little word of encouragement, every little hug um, meant the world to me. And so I just wanted to say thank you. I count it as a pleasure that I'm not worthy of to be able to be your pastor. And so I'm just thankful uh, for the opportunity to be able to lead you uh, for, for this season and for this period um, in our lives. As you can see, we're floating back into the Gospel of Mark. And so we started sometime this past summer. We hit pause on the Gospel of Mark. We did some studying in Second Peter. Second Peter is over. And so now for multiple months, we're just going to anchor our roots in deep in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to have a couple of breaks here and there over Advent. We're going to hit pause and look at the first coming of Christ. At the beginning of the year, we always hit pause and talk about things like the sanctity of life, things like race, things of ethnicity, and how the gospel reconciles those things. We're going to talk about prayer, but then for the most part, we're just going to be settling in and rolling through the gospel of Mark for um, quite some time to come. And this morning, we find ourselves at the very end of Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through, through 41. Now, if you've ever lived long enough, you you know this truth. You know what it's like to experience the difficult circumstances of life. So sometimes we have to admit that we find ourselves in those difficult circumstances of life just because it's of our own sin and because it's our own foolishness. Like, right, where we were in a predicament and it's just basically because we were being a knucklehead and we made poor decisions. So 
it should come as no surprise that you're in a financial predicament if you spend more money than you make. That is a problem of your, of your own making. That's a difficult circumstance because of poor decision-making on, on your part. Or it should come as no surprise that you're fired from your job on Tuesday if you told your boss that he's an ill-tempered buffoon on Monday during the business meeting, right? That you shouldn't walk out stumbling wide-eyed like, what just happened? Because of what you did on Monday, you made a poor decision, and so that's why you don't have a job on Tuesday. If you do these sorts of things... It should never be any surprise that difficulty comes your way. But see, one of the most important truths that we can learn as followers of Jesus is to understand that there are times when difficult circumstances come our way, not because of our own sin, not because of our own foolishness, but because King Jesus has deliberately led us right into the midst of those difficulties. And when we turn our attention to our text this morning, what we see that this is exactly where the disciples find themselves. In these couple of verses at the very end of Mark chapter 4, the disciples find themselves in a storm. And as we go through this morning, we're going to see that they're not in this storm because they were disobeying Jesus. Disobedience did not lead them to this place. They are actually in the eye of the storm because of obedience. Because Jesus comes to them in verse 35, the evening had come and he said to them, I want you to go with me to the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So in obedience to the Savior, they step into the boat and as they walk in obedience to his command, they actually find themselves in a storm. And so what Jesus is doing is, remember, in Mark chapter 4, a couple of months ago, he is teaching the people. He has just given them the parable of the sower. He has just explained to them why he's going to teach in parables. He has unpacked the parable of the sower. He's given them several more parables talking about the, the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God grows. And now that the day is done, now that the teaching time is over, Jesus says, guys, it's time to bounce. Let's take off and let's go to the other side of the lake. And Jesus deliberately leads these disciples right into the heart of the storm so that they would learn something true about who he truly is. See, when storms arise and fear is big and faith is gone, you and me need to learn just like the disciples needed to learn that King Jesus is the power in the storm. This little section here, as these disciples are going to experience Jesus rebuking the wind and telling the sea to be still, to be calm, this whole little episode is just infiltrated, it's permeated with these themes of fear and faith. Fear that Jesus does not care. Jesus is going to come to them and say in verse 40, listen, why are you so afraid? Why is fear gripping your heart right now? He's going to follow it up with another question, asking them, have you still no faith? And so the disciples are are wrestling with this difficult circumstance that has landed in their lap, not because they've done anything wrong, but because Jesus has deliberately led them there, and Jesus is going to use this opportunity to teach them something true about himself. 
that when we are prone to fear that Jesus has no care for us in a difficult circumstance, when we have faith that shrinks, when we find ourselves not believing, our hearts gripped by unbelief, which is in essence belief that Jesus cannot handle our situation. It's the belief that Jesus does not love me enough to keep me from this situation. Jesus knows that when fear and faith are gripping our hearts in these ways, we need to be reminded of something true about who Jesus Christ is. He is King Jesus, and he is power itself in the storm, and in the storm peace can only come from the king who is power. See, the power of King Jesus is the central point of these verses. Sometimes we'll read verses like this, right? And we learn that Jesus is calming the storm. And so a pastor will get up and someone like me will say, listen, Jesus can calm the sea and he can calm the storms in your life too. And, And that's true. That's an implication of what these verses have for us. But the point isn't to come and focus on man's problems and walk out of here with a man centered approach to these verses. We're meant to read these verses and see that Jesus Christ and the power of Christ the King, that is the central point of these verses. We're meant to read these verses and walk away with sort of a a knee-staggering, mind-boggled, eyes-open, jaw-dropped approach to Christ and go, man, there is just something about this man. He's not just a Galilean carpenter. We're meant to have this sort of mind-blowing response like the disciples do when we get down to that last question, when they look at everything that Jesus just did and to walk away going, who, who then is this? Who is this that can speak in this way and do these sorts of things? And so the way that Mark is going to drive this point home, that King Jesus is the power in the storm, as he's going to guide us through this episode in the life of these disciples by asking three different questions. Three different questions. And the first question we find is in verses 35 through 38 when the disciples ask, Teacher, do you not care? You see that there at the end of verse 38. Teacher, do you not care? So in verse 35, when Mark introduces this episode to us, He writes that on that day, that is the day that he had been teaching in the boat, teaching all these parables, that day's over now, this detail comes, evening time had come, and so Jesus looks at the disciples, he says, boys, let's roll, let's go across to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the other side of this lake. And so leaving the crowd, they take him with them in the boat just as he was, and Mark tells us that other boats are with him. So now that his teaching was done and the day had drawn to a close, it was time for Jesus to move on to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee so that he can continue preaching the gospel to other people. And because of the geography in the area, the Sea of Galilee was known for impressive thunderstorms, right? If you just go read a commentary or read something about this, the Sea of Galilee sits about 635 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains that reach up as high as 9,200 feet above sea level. And so what happens when the winds from the mountain come crashing down in the warm air in the Sea of Galilee, it produces historically these monstrous, impressive thunderstorms. And then 
as the Jesus and the disciples were going across the Sea of Galilee, this is what they find themselves in. In a moment's notice, one of these storms has descended upon him. And Mark tells us that as the boats were making their way to the other side, a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly filled with water. And in the midst of it all, as the disciples are rapidly overwhelmed by their circumstance, Mark tells us that they look to the back of the boat. They look back into the stern, and Jesus is snoozing, catching a nap. I love this detail. It's one of my favorite verses just because it's the seemingly innocuous little detail buried right there in the middle of the gospel. Jesus was asleep, not just asleep, on the cushion. Apparently there was one on the entire boat. Jesus has it. His head's on the cushion. The storms are blowing. The waves are crashing. The boat is sinking. They're freaking out, and they look back, and Jesus is going... You know, he's just burrowing in deep, man, on the cushion that's in the boat, Mark tells us. And it's not hard to imagine, I, I, don't, I don't think this is conjecture that's off the mark, that there is this look of disbelief on their faces as Jesus is catching a nap while nature's power is raging against these disciples. I don't think that it's too far to, to imagine that they just are like, like, what on earth is this guy doing? So the scenario just quickly turns to panic. As the disciples go and they wake Jesus up, and you got to know it's just not one of these little like, oh, shh, no, Jesus, like little nudges, Jesus, we need, to, we need you to do something. It's not that kind of waking Jesus up. Chaos is broken out in their life. One minute it was all well, one minute chaos is there. And as the circumstances of this moment in life loom large in their face, they go to the one who they assume can do something, but they're sort of having this conflict in their hearts because he seems blissfully unaware of the entirety of the circumstance. And so as they're panicking, they go to the, dis the disciples, go to Jesus, and they wake him up, Mark tells us, and shouting into the wind, they scream the question, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so if your mind is reeling right now and you're sort of like just putting these details together the, the whole scenario is really quite amazing if you can imagine it in your mind wind howling waves breaking boat sinking disciples yelling jesus sleeping and when we conjure up the scene of the disciples who are overwhelmed by their circumstance, it's no surprise that a picture like this, that's no surprise that verses like this are near and dear to our heart because when we read the kind of reaction the disciples had to this circumstance in their life, this scenario pierces our heart because we find ourselves in this scenario just like the disciples so often in our life. The reason why this scenario pierces our heart is because everyone who's ever tried to walk out their faith in Jesus Christ in this world has felt like the disciples did whenever they found themselves in the boat. Where one moment all is well and then in a flash all is hell. 
where everything is going wrong, where in an instant, all of a sudden, you find yourself sinking, and Jesus seems to be asleep in the back of the boat, blissfully unaware of your difficulty. See, when we experience life in this way, like the disciples, you know and I know that fear has a way of increasing. And faith that Jesus is loving me right now has a way of leaving. And when fear is big and faith is gone, we are tempted to believe that Jesus does not care for us. That's what the disciples are doing. Look what's going on. The windstorm goes. The waves are coming. The boat is seeking. They're looking around at the circumstance. Fear is gripping their heart. Faith is quickly evaporating that this man on the back of the boat who's blissfully unaware of our circumstance, faith is leaving quickly that this man has a care for my soul right now. And so it prompts these disciples to ask Jesus, don't you actually care for me right now? I mean, don't you see my circumstance after all right now? So when fear is big and faith is gone, we are tempted to believe that Jesus does not care. Because of their circumstance, the disciples had come to the point rather quickly where they were convinced that because of their circumstance, Jesus did not care for them. He didn't care for them. In a way, when they were asking this question, they were saying, listen, Jesus, if you loved us, you wouldn't let us go through something like this. Jesus, if you loved us, we wouldn't be about to sink like this. Jesus, if you had a care for us, you would not let us endure this deadly peril right now. But the problem is that the disciples had grabbed the wrong end of a stick because their premise that if Jesus loved them, he would not let bad things happen to them is a wrong premise. Jesus does allow people he loves to go through storms. He can love somebody and still let bad things happen to them because he is God and because he knows better than we do. And so like the disciples, we are tempted to believe the same things. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficult circumstances, we fear that if we were to ask Jesus the question, Jesus, don't you know that I'm perishing because of this circumstance? Don't you know that I'm perishing because of this trial? Don't you know that I'm about to drown, I'm about to sink, I feel like I'm about to die because of this circumstance we fear that if we were to ask Jesus this question that he would actually affirm our fear by looking us dead in the eye and go no I really don't care no I don't care I don't care about your father's cancer I don't care about your wayward child I don't care about your sleepless baby I don't care about your overwork I don't care about your marriage struggles I don't care about your singleness I just don't care that fear grips our hearts more than we would care to admit That if we were to come to the Savior who supposedly loves us, and the only thing that we can see are the elements of our difficult circumstance in front of our face, and as we're looking into the difficult circumstances, we're having trouble looking through the difficult elements of our circumstance and seeing that the person on the other side actually has a care for us. We fear that if we ask the question, he would tell us, no, I really don't have a care for you. This is what we are tempted to believe when we allow storms to come between us and the assurance of Christ's care for us. Listen, when we read stories like this, whether we like to admit it or not, we're more like the disciples than we care to admit. 
when storms arise, you and I have the tendency to doubt Christ's love for us. We allow our faith to be diverted from its anchor in the one with sovereign power over all creation. Which is why I'm so thankful for verse 39 as Mark continues the story. See, as Mark continues the story, he doesn't just end it with, listen, Jesus says, let's roll to the other side. Windstorm, waves, boat sinking, Jesus asleep. The disciples come undone. Gripped by fear, quickly losing faith. They ask, do you not care that we're perishing? And then Mark goes, well, next story. He doesn't do that. He turns our attention away from the elements of the storm and he turns our attention to the one who has power over the storm. Verse 39, Jesus, he awoke and he rebuked the wind. And then he said, To the sea, peace be still. And the wind which he rebuked with his words actually ceased. And the raging sea, remember that, is breaking into the boat so much that it's filling the boat up. All of a sudden becomes a great calm as the result of Jesus' command. If you're reading in your text there. There is that word, there was a great calm. That word great in the original is the word mega. So it's a mega calm. So if you go back to verse 37, there's a great windstorm. So there's a mega windstorm that all of a sudden, with the simple command of the Christ the King, becomes mega calm. Raging waters, smooth as glass. One command, peace, be still. And so bringing Jesus... To the point where Mark says, in light of him rebuking the wind and saying to the sea, peace be still, wind ceases, there's a great calm, a mega calm that comes over the waters. It leads Jesus, it prompts him to then look right back at the disciples. They've asked him a question, now he's going to have a go at it and he's going to ask them a question. And the question is this, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? That's the second question. In other words, Jesus, in light of the panicked reaction of the disciples, he's asking them, listen, why this fear? Why this unbelief? I mean, don't you know who I am? Have you lost sight of the one who has power over the storm? And see, the crazy thing is that the disciples, they did have an inkling of who Jesus is. Not a full, complete picture. They're still learning. They're still growing in their journey. But in a way, Jesus posing the question, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Really, it's a way that he's prompting them to consider in a deeper way, don't you know who I am? Like I said, the disciples, they did have an inkling of who Jesus was. If you remember all that we've worked through, starting Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3, all the way through 4, they've seen Jesus heal with authority. They've seen Jesus teach and cast out demons with authority. They've seen Jesus prove that he is the Lord who brings genuine rest to the souls of man. They've seen Jesus prove he's the strong man who binds Satan. They've seen him display the necessary authority to show he has the power to forgive sins. But the reality is this, when storms come our way, storms have a way of making us forgive what we know to be true about Jesus. 
When fear is big and faith is gone, we lose sight of the power which brings peace. When fear is gripping our heart and faith that Jesus actually has a care for our soul grips our heart, we lose sight of the power which brings peace. So as the wind howled and the waves beat down on the disciples, the intensity of their difficulty and the magnitude of their circumstance, it caused them to forget that peace in the storm is found in the power of the king. Peace in the storm is found in the power of the king. In rebuking the wind and commanding the sea to be still, Jesus was demonstrating that he's not just someone who has power. He is power itself. Notice that Jesus, whenever in verse 39, he awakes and rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace be still. It's not some incantation. It's not some wand waving. He's not saying, listen, I've got a little bit of power, a little measure of power given to me from God on high, and I'm going to choose to wield that now. No, what Jesus does is he gets up. He doesn't say in the name of Zeus or in the name of this person or in the name of these sorts of things, I'm going to make this thing happen. He just gets up and he demonstrates a innate raw power that is an attribute of who he is as the son of God and so he's the lord of creation Colossians 1 he's the one sustaining the winds that are blowing right now and he's the one who's causing those water molecules not to split off into oblivion and so if he's the lord of creation he just gets up and like a father talking to a disobedient child he can look at that wind he can look at that wave and just simply go I want you to be quiet now thank you and exerting that raw power The wind and the waves can do nothing but comply like an obedient child. And standing there in that moment, what the disciples come to learn is like, this is not just some man who has power. This man is not just some Galilean carpenter. This man is the Son of God himself who is power itself. And since Jesus is power itself, Mark wants us to see that he alone can be the only source of peace in your storm. If you go to anything other than Christ in the storm, you're going to a faulty power source. So the question becomes, when fear that Jesus does not have a care about your situation looms large in your face... And when faith in Christ's love for you is gone, where do you go for peace? I mean, you've got to ask yourself this question. Where do you go for peace? Storms are a part of life from which no one escapes. Whether it's the death of a cherished loved one, whether it's the loss of a job unexpectedly, whether it's the betrayal of a friend, whether it's someone who is bent on turning your world upside down, when the stormy circumstances of life buffet your soul, you will look to something for peace in the storm. You will. Drowning men, drowning women look for a rescue from something, from somewhere. It's the way it works. It's the way we're wired. Mark is saying, don't look to a faulty Savior. Look to the Savior who is power itself, who has the power to bear peace in your storm. So where do you go for peace? 
In these verses, Mark is calling you to set your anchor in the Lord of creation. To set your anchor in the one who is sovereign in power. To set your anchor in him who has a care for your soul in the eye of the storm. Thinking about this made me think of a song. I'm sure you guys have heard it on the radio recently. So that when my hopes and dreams are far from me and I'm running out of faith, I see the future I picture slowly fade away. And when the tears of pain and heartache are pouring down my face, I can say I find peace in Jesus' name. And when the test comes in and the doctor says I've only got a few months left, it's like a bitter pill I'm swallowing, I can barely take a breath. And when addiction steals my baby girl and there's nothing I can do, my only hope is to trust in you. Why? Because in the eye of the storm, you remain in control. And in the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm. Well, after Jesus asks why this fear and unbelief, Mark moves us on to the reaction of the disciples, verse 41. And he poses the question that we see on the lips of the disciples. Once again, it's back to them. It's their turn. How are they going to react to what they just saw Jesus do? Well, they react with terror, and it causes them to ask the question, who then is this? As a result of Jesus' power, we see that the disciples were filled with great fear. And so they say to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So it's a little wonder that these disciples turn from fear to terror after witnessing Jesus bring order out of chaos with the simple command of peace, be still. And in a brief moment on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples were able to catch a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of the Lord of creation. And in that one moment when they received a deeper understanding of his power, Mark says they were filled with great fear. So notice there's that word great again. Verse 37, a great windstorm. That's a mega windstorm. Verse 39, it turned into a great calm. That's a mega calm. And now in verse 41, it says they were filled with great fear. Some of your translations might say great terror. In the original language, because it's just odd in English, the phrase is actually this. They were terrified with mega terror in light of seeing the power of Jesus displayed. And it's like if there was ever an appropriate response to somebody looking bold-faced into a hurricane, standing in a boat, and then saying, peace be still, and then instantly reacts and turns into a calm, the right reaction to that is go, what in the world is this? I am terrified with mega terror right now. And what's coming out of my mouth is the only thing that is on my mind right now. I'm consumed with, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. See, they're adding it to a list. Demons are obeying him. I want you out of this body. The demons obey. He's teaching with authority. He's healing people. He's declaring with authority that he's the Lord of rest. He's, he's the one who can bring salvation to sinners. And now they're like, well, of course, what else can he do? Like even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this? Who is this man? And Mark tells us that the calming of the natural storm, it actually raises a spiritual storm 
in the disciples' hearts. They moved from fear to terror because they had taken Jesus, back in verse 36, just as he was. And now they are awed to discover who he really is. See, more than an ordinary carpenter, the man standing before them, as Mark tells us in verse 1, chapter 1, that this Jesus is Christ the King, the Son of God. He's the one who controls the wind and the sea with a mere command. He is the one who speaks and nature obeys. So again, the question that you must wrestle with this morning beyond where do I go to find peace is the question that Mark wants you to wrestle with. Who then is this? Have you drawn a conclusion? Who then is this? Is he another guy? Is he a carpenter? Is he a myth? Is he a legend? Is he fable? Or is he the Lord of glory incarnate who can come to save sinners? Who then is this? This is the question Mark wants you to wrestle with because he wants you to see that Jesus is the Lord who loves you and has a care for your soul. He wants you to see that Jesus is, chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is who this is, this man in the boat. He's the anchor of your soul in the midst of any storm because peace is found in the power of this king. And here's the good news concerning this king. As one brother puts it, not only does King Jesus have the power to calm the storms of life, but one day King Jesus is going to calm all storms and he's going to still all waves. By his power, he's going to destroy destruction and break brokenness and he's going to kill death. And the reason why Jesus can do this is because on the cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us for eternity, the storm of God's eternal justice, only for him to survive that storm to the glory of God's grace. So in the end, if you know that Jesus did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, Mark says, listen, then you can rest assured that he will not abandon you in the much smaller storms that you're experiencing right now. Do you see how the gospel specifically applies to you right now if Jesus has a care enough for your soul to go to the cross and to suffer the wrath of God so that he would sink under the waves of sin and death only to be resurrected to the newness of life if he loves you enough to be willing to have a care for your soul in that kind of storm, then no matter what other kind of storm you're experiencing right now, Jesus has a care for you. Which is why we can sing, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray.
Father, we are thankful that in the eye of the storm, we have a Savior who is power itself, a Savior who can bear that power and bring us peace in the eye of the storm. God, I pray that we would walk away today wrestling with these two questions. Who then is this? For some of us, we've drawn the conclusion that he is the Lord of glory. He's the Savior. He's the one who can save me from the penalty of my sins. And we've cast our faith on this Lord. And we find salvation in his name. God, I pray that you would walk us out of here with our hearts burning within us as a result of going, this is my Lord. This is my Savior. This is my King And that our hearts would burn within us, burning with joy, burning with a fervor to go and invite others to come and know this Lord of glory. Father, for some of us here, when we ask the question, who is this Lord of glory? We can't say that about Jesus Christ. He's some good guy. Maybe he's some teacher. Maybe he had some pithy sayings. But we can't say, he's my Savior. He's my Lord. He has ransomed me. So, Father, I pray that as they wrestle with the question, who then is this that they would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, do these works in our hearts and mind. Help us to anchor ourselves into the Lord who is power itself so that we may walk upright, broad-shouldered, not because there's some power within us, but because we are supported, sustained, energized by the power of Christ that dwells upon us. God, we love you and we thank you. We need you to do this in us today, not so that our names would be made great, so that the name of Jesus Christ would be profoundly magnified, whether we find ourselves in the eye of the storm or whether we're finding ourselves in the calm and the peace on the edge of the sea. No matter where we're at, Father, help us to consistently Proclaim Jesus Christ as the King who is the power in the storm. We love you, and it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.